Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. Well, it's going to be a busy day for me today. We have our broadcast, an hour and a half. If you'll give me the 90 minutes, I would love to be able to bring my broadcast partners to this table to help you look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. And then right after that, Judy and I drive down to Atlanta, get on an airplane, fly into Minneapolis, Minnesota. We'll be there for the Sunday evening 6.30 event of Worldview Weekend. Brandon House, myself, and Sharam Hadian will come together. We'll be speaking at that 6.30 there in Minneapolis. And so just go to the website. They'll give you the exact addresses where these rallies will be held, and you'll be able to find out all you need. Come join us as we study the prophetic Word of God. Busy, busy weekend. Hope you're having a great weekend. Probably most of you, the end of your your spring retreat time, wherever you've been. Some go south to the warm weather. Some crazies go to France and go to a resort area where they can ski all the evening over. <laughs> I'm talking about my broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Now, you're not on the slopes right now. You're down resting in front of the fireplace, right? Well, Jimmy, we're not in front of the fireplace. We're playing hooky out in the sun, so we have better reception so I can talk to you and all of our listeners around the world. Well, we're so glad we could catch a hold of you, and thanks you for coming on board off those ski slopes to chat with us. Very important issues we need to look at, so thank you for taking your time. Ken, let's get underway with the presidents this week meeting in Turkey. I'm talking about the presidents of Russia, Turkey, and Iran quite interesting. They're coming together to discuss the future for Syria. And guess who was left out? Israel. Talk to me about this meeting and how they can make decisions without considering what Israel would like to bring to the table. Well, this is a new axis of evil. I think there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, You and I have been talking about this for some time, the coming together of Turkey, Iran, and Russia. It's bad news. It's bad news for Israel. It's bad news for the United States. It's bad news for NATO. Turkey is supposed to be a member of NATO. You have General Mattis, our Secretary of Defense, who constantly says that we're trying to keep Turkey cooperating with us at NATO at the same time that uh, the Turkish regime and Erdogan has been threatening U.S. troops in Syria, threatening to kill them. So this is truly bad news. A Turkey-Russia-Iran alliance is really poised to do serious damage to oil routes, to oil exports from Middle East, and also potentially to Israel. Now, there's a caveat to that, is that Putin has been surprisingly friendly to Netanyahu. They have exchanged many mutual visits back and forth, and Putin is not an anti-Semite. He's not anti-Israel. It would be nice to think that Putin could exercise a bit of a moderating influence, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we mentioned those four nations. There's another we left out. Let me bring to the table... The United States, Donald Trump says he wants to get out of Syria right now, so how would he be involved in the planning there? Uh, But number two, this is sending a mixed message over to Israel. They're much concerned. What about this? He did have a meeting at the Pentagon earlier this week. That's when he came out and softened up his rhetoric about pulling out of Syria. What do you think? Well, well, that's right. Remember, Donald Trump ran for president. One of his platforms was that we are not going to get involved in all of these foreign wars. We are not going to be spreading democracy around the world. We're not going to be supporting up rotten regimes. And we're going to defend American interests first. And nevertheless, soon after he took over as president, he increased the number of U.S. troops in Syria. Why? Because he saw an overwhelming national interest 
in defeating ISIS. ISIS was, they had to be pushed out of Iraq and then pushed out of Syria. That job is about 90% done. They are out of Iraq almost entirely. They're holed up in parts of Syria near Deir Zor and near the Iraqi border, where the U.S. troops are located, and where the Turks are threatening to come in with their Syrian, quote, opposition allies, who, in fact, are closer to ISIS than they are to us. Uh, so our national interest is getting rid of ISIS. Our national interest is not determining the future of Syria. And that's one reason I think you don't see the U.S. involved in some of these talks. Let me bring Iran to the forefront just for a moment. We always have to talk about Syria and Iran when you and I have a conversation. Uh, the leader of Mossad, that's the intelligence organization for Israel, maybe the best in all the world, made a statement this week he's 100% sure that Iran is now developing a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Boy, he's right on target, I believe, but uh, that's an awesome thought, isn't it? Well, well, Jimmy, I think he went further than that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the director of Mossad said that the Iranians were actually building a nuclear weapon. Yes, sir. Yes, and that is, uh, we know that they've been developing one, but they're actually building one. That is something uh, obviously very serious. I am sure that there are many people in Washington who are going to dismiss this. They're saying the Israelis are crying wolf. I would not believe it in this instance. The Israelis have never said that the Iranians are building a nuclear weapon before. This is the first time they've ever made a statement like that. And I'm sure it is uh, the result of some new piece of intelligence. This also comes just a couple of days after a former director of Mossad revealed and this was in the Israeli press, so it cleared the military censor. He revealed that in 2007, Mossad uh, came across the information about the Syrian nuclear reactor being built by North Korea. They didn't know anything about it. And he explained exactly how they found out. The head of the Syrian nuclear weapons program was on some overseas trip, and Mossad visited his hotel room and made a copy of his hard drive on his computer, which mm. he had conveniently left behind in the hotel room. And on that hard drive, they found information, uh, documentation, correspondence about this nuclear reactor. And the Israelis said, well, we don't even know about this. can't be real. They didn't even translate most of the stuff for three months. When they finally translated and paid attention to it, then they launched the military operation to take it out. So it could be that Mossad has this kind of new intelligence about Iran's nuclear weapons program and I would take this very seriously indeed. Well, you're there in Europe, in France, and I know that the United States representatives have been over there meeting with the European Union people to discuss the Iranian nuclear deal. I just read a report that this nuclear deal's days are numbered. Do you think that's the case, or how's that going to work out? Well, thank God they are, and thank God President Trump fired Rex Tillerson, who was trying to go behind his back and negotiate a deal with the Europeans to keep the Iran nuclear agreement alive when, as President Trump has said, it's the worst deal ever negotiated. We never should have signed it, uh, never should have entered into it. We had the Iranians on the ropes before that deal was signed. Their economy was in tatters. Their currency was losing value literally every day. Their oil exports had been cut in half. And the, the government was terrified that the people were going to rise up against them because of, to start with, this economic malaise in Iran. And so Obama just gave them a new lease on life, $150 billion cash. By the way, the Turks gave them an additional $100 billion in cash. We've learned about that recently through a court case up in New York, through money laundering through Turkish government banks. So we have propped up. The United States of America and our European allies have propped up the Iranian regime 
outrageous, certainly against our strategic interest. And now I think the president is going to call a halt to this deal. And that's one of the reasons he fired Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. And it's one of the reasons we should all be able to, I think, rest more soundly at night with John Bolton in the White House as a national security advisor. Ken, I've got to talk to you about uh, an article I read from a paper that is published, actually, in Moscow, Russia. It says that Moscow, and they had a depiction of David, little David, King David, uh, there in Israel many years ago, 3,000 years ago, with a slingshot going after Goliath. And (laughs) the Moscow uh, cartoon character there said um, that uh, the West had better wake up, remember the fate of Goliath when he took on little David. Well, uh, they're talking about the fact that... uh, you know, the spy situation as it relates to the United Kingdom, etc., etc. Moscow is not going to go away. They're not going to shut up. They're not going to take a back seat, are they? Well, no. The the Russians are not going to take a back seat. They're not going to go away. And the Russians have always historically had been conflicted between, you know, those who wanted to deal with the West and have alliances with the West and those who really thought that there's nothing in it for Russia to deal with the West, and that they should turn back eastward and in, into their Slavic roots. And you're seeing the same thing today with Putin as happened in the 19th century, I think. Putin's advisors, his generals, the general staff, they are all of Russophile class, if you wish. They all believe in Russia first. In addition to that, they have a chip on their shoulder because they believe, as Putin has said many times, that dissolving the Soviet Union in the end of the Cold World War were the worst things that ever happened to Russia. It was an absolute disaster, and, they, and Putin was catapulted to power on a promise to the Russian people he was going to restore Russian greatness. Uh, So this kind of thing doesn't surprise me. There's going to be a lot of strutting, but Russia remains a very, very stressed economy. Uh, They have two exports, oil and gas and weapons, and that's about it. I've said before uh, on this program, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, we used to call them Sierra Leone with nuclear weapons. Today I might up the ante a little bit and call them Belgium with nuclear weapons. (laughs) Yeah, I love your little phrases, the way you are a wordsmith in everything you say. And in addition to that, we won't be able to cover it, no time left hardly, but uh, Russia and China getting together their ministers of defense, saying that China will be able to stand with Russia. That doesn't sound good. Let me ask you about this because of your relationship there with uh, those people in northern Iraq, a rise of the Ninevite Christians in Iraq. They're celebrating the Assyrian New Year and Easter. That's good news and, uh, indeed, a great way to conclude our conversation, isn't it? It's tremendous good news, Jimmy, and it's the first time that the Christians of northern Iraq have been able to celebrate Easter in several years. ISIS swept into that area, and now for the first time the churches are open again and they're celebrating Easter. But believe me, they're all on tenterhooks. They're all you know, walking on eggs. They're worried that ISIS will come back, and there's a certain reason for them to fear that. ISIS is not dead. It's not over yet. Well, I uh, was going to bring that up, but uh, we'll start with that maybe next week when we get together. Hey, uh, let me get you back now to the slopes. Have a great time. Be careful. Don't fall and hurt yourself. We need you to report to us on the current events in light of biblical prophecy. Have a good time, and thank you so much for taking a moment to be with us, Ken. My pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you so much. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Doling comes to this broadcast table with his Middle East news update. All ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. 
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're going to the Middle East and cover that region of the world. It's a key region as you think about Bible prophecy. Of course, that's the area where all of the prophetic truth found in God's Word is actually going to come to fulfillment. So we keep you abreast of what's happening with the Middle East News Update. Every single week we do that with David Dolan. David, a lot of news coming out of that part of the world. We need to talk to you about it. I would guess the number one headline has to be the Palestinian demonstration right there at the Gaza-Israeli border. Second week, they seem to be aiming these events to take place on Fridays. That would be their holy day, the Islamic holy day. Last week, about 18 killed, a number wounded. This week, a couple have been killed and also a number more wounded. They're continuing on going up to May the 14th, May the 15th, when they're going to have the big celebration, a six-week campaign to try to use as a PR ploy to tell the world, hey, we want to go back to our ancestral homeland, and we want the right to go there. I don't know that they ever had control of that piece of real estate. Let's start with that, then we'll talk about the demonstration. In reality, David, the Palestinians never had a piece of real estate. They sure didn't have a state, but uh, what are their ancestral homelands? If you go back some 4,500 years ago, yeah, Jacob and Esau were born there. Uh, But other than that, what access do they have to their ancestral holy land that they are calling for? Well, in fact, Jimmy, the historians have determined that a lot of today's 
quote, Palestinians, and again, that's a name that they adopted for themselves only in the 1950s and 60s to make a separate political identity from other Arabs in the region. They weren't known by that name beforehand at all. In fact, Palestine's a Western term that the Catholic Church basically gave to the area. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the scriptures, as you know. And in fact, a lot of these folks came into the Holy Land from uh, Egypt and other areas when the Jews started coming back and work was produced, and they were building roads and railroads and dams and bridges and all sorts of things, and hundreds of thousands of uh, Arabs poured in and then remained in there, so they don't even have necessarily that ancient roots there, maybe uh, 50, 100, 150 years. But at any rate, they're there, they're people, they're humans, and they certainly um, deserve uh, decent lives, but uh, the leadership, Hamas, is one of the most radical on earth. You can compare them to North Korea and Iran in terms of their extremism. The leadership of Hamas has adopted this method uh, many times before, Jimmy, of Friday demonstrations. That was the first uprising uh, formula in 89, 90, 91. It was the second uprising formula in 2000, 2001, 2002, where rioting would uh, peak on Fridays after Muslim prayers with the mosque leaders often, as they've been doing the past couple weeks again, encouraging people to go out and march and demonstrate and uh, quote, get back your ancient homes. But as I just said, in many cases, there are no ancient homes there. And and at any rate, where there were some farms and farmland and that that, they, that maybe their great-grandparents had, uh, today there's skyscrapers and roads. So it, it's a question of a real peace process, how this will be resolved. Israel has proposed, as you know, over decades, building uh, housing in Gaza, nice, modern apartments uh, in conjunction with other countries helping for the Palestinians. That's always been rejected by Palestinian leaders. They frankly want to keep their people in this sort of stateless condition until they can wipe Israel out as their dream. Well, that's not going to happen. You know that. The scriptures say it, and reality says it on the ground. But they go on and on, and this Friday it was the tires. They focused on burning tires everywhere, and that was so that ostensibly Palestinians could march under the cover of the smoke uh, right to the border fence. They've been talking about tearing the border fence down. And indeed, as you said, uh, this Friday again, there were some young Palestinians that were at the fence. They were using that cover, pulling at the fence, and uh, several were killed and, and more wounded. But it was better than last week, and it hasn't spread into Judea and Samaria so much, Jimmy, and that's what the Israelis are really worried about, that we'd have a full-scale uprising again, at least for the next couple months, as you say, this is supposed to last till mid-May. But um, so far, it's been mostly confined to the Gaza Strip. I was talking earlier, David, with Edomar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch, covering the Palestinian media and what they're really saying to their people. And in essence, we agreed that this was a propaganda ploy uh, for the purpose of trying to alert the world of supposed needs by the Palestinian people. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, Jimmy. It's designed for television. You've got uh, a set stage already because they declared in advance that these demonstrations will occur along the border fence with Israel, the Gaza border fence, specifically in a couple areas. 
So there's already, you know, international media, the BBC, everybody's already there waiting for the action. It's very dramatic. They're marching up hands in hands, you know, to the fence and shouting slogans and burning American and Israeli flags and doing all these other things. But they also, Jimmy, uh, this Friday, as opposed to last week, they had catapults. And you know, Jimmy, if there's a rock, a good-sized rock in one of these catapults and it hits you in the head, it can kill you. And so many Israelis have been, in fact, killed by stones and rocks over the years, especially they throw them from overpasses at cars and this sort of thing. They were also instructed to bring mirrors to the border on Friday, Jimmy, and that was the thought being that the Israelis couldn't fire at them because these big mirrors would be hiding where they were somehow or reflecting back to them their own selves. Or I don't know what was intended, but that was the Palestinian call. And again, it wasn't as large a crowd. It was about a third less than the first Friday. And the Israelis are hoping that it will remain rather low-key until mid-May. But they are expecting that mid-May rally that has been called for to commemorate what they call al-Nakba, the catastrophe of Israel's creation in 1948 in May, 50, uh, 70 years ago. That is expected to be a major hundreds of thousands, probably, of Arabs participating. And, in fact, uh, rallies and demonstrations are being scheduled throughout uh, the Arab Middle East. David, there is a report coming out of Jerusalem as well uh, that the Jewish visitation to the Temple Mount doubled since 2017 during the time of Passover. We're uh, still uh, almost a part of that period of time, Uh, but uh, that probably was somewhat of an incitement uh, to the Palestinians as well, especially with the Jordanians, King Abdullah, He's very angered over the way that they've converted the Temple Mount for an area for the Jews to pray. So this all is mixed together with what uh, they're doing there at the Gaza border and what's happening on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Would you not agree with that? Well, definitely, and that's always the ultimate rallying cry in these uh, Palestinian uh, demonstrations, riots, whatever you want to call them. As you said, this one is really called the March uh, to Return, quote, to our homes, our ancestral homelands, the March of Return, but what they're really looking at is a return to Jerusalem, and of course the elimination of the Jewish state entirely, meaning that Islam will rule once again, this is their dream, their goal, exclusively over Jerusalem and over that holy, they call it Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary in uh, Arabic, and by the way, Jimmy, scholars say, well, where did they come up in ancient times with that name if they didn't already recognize that site as a very holy sanctuary for God, the noble sanctuary, the holy sanctuary? Well, that's because it was the site of the Jewish temples, not any previous Muslim buildings, but that is the ultimate uh, goal, and that's their rallying cry, Jimmy, and it'll continue to be. You know, it's interesting, at the same time this is all going on, the Saudi king has decided that he is going to unofficially recognize Israel having a right to be able to stay there in the land. Now, I say the Saudi king, I'm not sure if it's his son, the heir apparent, but uh, it seems like the son is running things anyway, but the fact that Saudi Arabia recognizing Israel with the right to be in that part of the world, quite interesting. 
It is, and the Crown Prince is really taking policy quite far in Saudi Arabia from what it's been allowing, and he is the force behind this as opposed to his very elderly father, who's the official king. He is promoting, you know, female rights and uh, all sorts of things, and he even said this week that the Jews do deserve a homeland in the area. They did come from here. They deserve to be back here, but the Arabs, of course, the Palestinians, who went into the normal uh, statements they make. And this, of course, Jimmy, only 10 days after Air India was allowed for the first time since 1948, uh, a foreign aircraft to fly over Saudi airspace on its way to Tel Aviv, on its way to the Israeli airport. That's a regular commercial flight now. That's revolutionary in and of itself. But the Saudis are very concerned, Jimmy, with the President Trump's statement that U.S. forces will be pulled out of Syria as soon as possible. And actually, the Israelis are very concerned about that as well, that Crown Prince Salman is going to be very much uh, in line for assassination now because of these policies he's announcing. So he'll need to watch his back. Folks, you've been listening to a report from David Dolan. And do you understand why he is key in our broadcast partner's team as he comes to this broadcast table with that information? David, very important. Thank you for this update. We'll talk again next week for sure. Thank you, my good friend. See you next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a short break here, come back with Edomar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch. We're going to continue to think about this march of return and what the Palestinians are actually saying to their people about this. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right, let's go now to Israel. Itamar Mark is standing by. He is the director of Palestinian Media Watch. Their web address, palwatch.org. You need to bookmark that on your item that you use to get onto the Internet because this is a key location for you to continue to understand what actually the Palestinian media are telling their people, and they sometimes tell the world, in fact, most of the time, telling the world something different. So I thought it would be very good for us to get a hold of Itamar and talk about what's happening at the Gaza border with Israel where there are thousands. In fact, last weekend there were 30,000 Palestinian people coming to the border in what they are referring to as the March of Return. Let's just take that for a moment, the title of this demonstration, Itamar, 
do they mean they want to return into Israel and go to the places that they supposedly had some kind of control over in the past? I mean, talk to us, Itamar, about what their whole purpose is behind this march of return. Is it a propaganda or a power play? It's actually both, and let me first discuss the name with you. The name, the March of Return, really is so important for the world to understand that the Palestinian Authority and Hamas are not interested in just Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip. They're interested in all of Israel, because this is coming from Gaza. They, they claim that they have no territorial claims around Gaza, and yet they want to return to the Negev, to Jaffa, to Haifa, they're marching to essentially say, we want all of Israel. So that's the first thing. The name is very valuable, very, very powerful, and gives a very strong message to the Palestinian population that all of Israel really belongs to Palestinians. That's their claim. Now, in addition, what we're seeing is a PR game. They know that they're not going to be able to get into Israel. They know that Israel has soldiers there, and they know that Israel is not going to let massive numbers of people come in. But what do they want? They want exactly what happened last week. They want people to cross the border into Israeli territory. Many of them, in fact, the majority of them were actual terrorists. And when they crossed the border, some of them actually holding rifles, uh, they were shot. And 17 of them were actually killed. Now, what did this do for the Palestinian Authority? Palestinian Authority and Hamas were probably celebrating every one of those deaths because they were then able to run to the world with this big PR story saying, look, Israelis are killing uh, innocent uh, protesters. And, of course, it's a lie, and, of course, it's not true, but that is it. So basically there are two messages here. One, it's a PR thing to make Israel look bad and to put the Palestinian issue, which no one really cares about very much, on the front page of the newspapers. And significantly, the Palestinians are willing and anxious to sacrifice the lives of their people just to get onto the front pages of the world's newspapers. You know, Itamar, I'm reminded of the last book in the Bible, Malachi, which talks about the fact that in chapter 1, the Edomites said that they would return, but the Lord responded through the prophet Malachi uh, that he would call their borders the borders of wickedness and have indignation against them forever. Boy, this seems like a prophetic passage of God's Word coming better into focus. Would you agree with that? I mean, doesn't that sound logical? The, there's no doubt that the borders uh, that Israel has now is with people who are evil. Not only are they anxious to kill Israelis, they're even anxious to kill their own people. Let me give you an example, and this is something which, which clarifies in their own words how anxious they are to make people go out and be killed. Latach, just this week, published uh, two different posts on their various Facebook pages. One of them shows the picture of a Palestinian flag dripping with blood. Mm. And the text was, how wonderful and mighty you are, O flag of Palestine, when you are soaked in the blood of the martyrs. And then there was a second one where you see a Palestinian, it's a drawing, you see a Palestinian leaning over a barbed wire fence, and blood is dripping out from his hands uh, into the ground, and the text is, we are sowing our land from the veins, from the arteries, from our blood, from the inner heart. We will build our state. Uh, so they're telling the people, you will build the state with your own blood. You have to go and give your, give your life. 
Now, when did these things, when are these published? These are published in the very week that the Palestinian Authority is planning and Hamas is planning to have this great march, and they saw how successful it was for PR purposes to have dead Palestinians last week. So now they're encouraging their people, go out, shed your blood, because the land needs your blood. This is, this is pure hate material. It's, it's child abuse when children see these things, um, and it's abuse of their entire population. Folks, you understand uh, that the Palestinian leadership using the Palestinian media to incite their people. Again, a very important reason for having Itamar Marcus around on our broadcast, but also you going to his website, palwatch.org. Now, I understand, Itamar, this is a six-week campaign, actually going up to May 14, 15, and Nakba Day. Explain to our listeners Nakba Day and why the six weeks is key going up and concluding on Independence Day for Israel. Well, this is Israel's 70th year, uh, 70th Independence Day, and it's going to be great celebrations throughout the country. And the Palestinians mourned the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, they would have preferred that Israel be destroyed. They, they joined with seven Arab states to attack Israel in 1948, and they defined the results of the war as a catastrophe, which in the Arabic is Nakba. Now, what's also very interesting is that it's not just the creation of Israel, but it's also the the refugee problem. Now, the refugees, there were apparently about 750,000 Arabs who lived in the new area of the state of Israel, um, and the overwhelming majority of them ran away during the war. They were told to by their leaders to run away, and this we have documented. Um, and those, those 750,000 then became refugees, and they call the refugee problem also a Nakba part of a catastrophe. Now, you just have to understand one thing. All the tens of millions of refugees that were created since World War II and during World War II, the United Nations had a separate commission uh, to resettle them, and all of them have been resettled uh, within a few years, and then they have their new homes, and they got on with their lives. The United Nations created a separate United Nations body called UNRWA, uh, which is dealing just with Palestinian refugees, and their goal is just the opposite. It's to make sure that they don't settle, and they actually, not only do they call all the Palestinians who actually did leave the camps, I'm, I'm sorry, did leave Israel uh, refugees, but all of their descendants. So now you have grown from 750,000 to are very few of those original ones who are left, but then, on the other hand, you have millions of people who claim to be refugees because of these are all of their descendants. So the United Nations, the international community, which is funded by the United States, uh, created this massive problem of, of people sitting in refugee camps 70 years now, where every other refugee from that period and for the decades afterwards, all of them have been solved. You know, this PR program by Hamas is indicative of the fact that they do not want coexistence with the Israeli people. In other words, two states for a peace-type process. But instead, they want the whole state. What about, is there a possibility this whole campaign could spread to Judea and Samaria and Fatah, the other faction of the Palestinian Authority, get involved? If it becomes very successful, Fatah will have no choice but to join because... 
Fatah and Hamas are in tremendous competition all the time for the popularity amongst the Palestinian population. And every time Hamas does something that's successful, the Palestinian Authority copies it. Every time the Palestinian Authority does something, Hamas copies it. We've seen this numerous times. So if this really, if if the Palestinian Authority sees that Hamas is going up in the polls, uh, I have no doubt that uh, between now and um, May 14th, they will actually do something and, and tell their people to do the same thing. Now, that border is much, much more difficult for Israel, and it'll be much, much more complicated. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that Israel is able to put a stop to this quickly in Gaza before the Palestinian Authority decides that they want to follow. You know, this is the reason we have Itamar Marcos to these microphones. We're going to stay on top of this story with Itamar and all the way up to the campaign conclusion, which will be May 14, Independence Day for the Jewish people, their birthday, their 70th birthday. Itamar, it's great for people to know the truth. I'm so glad we could get a hold of you and allow you to tell everybody out there what the Palestinian media is saying, what their purposes are, and give us some background information. Appreciate it so much, my good friend. We'll have to stay in close touch as we continue to watch this campaign of the March of Return by the Palestinian people. Thank you, Edomar. Thank you, and have a good day. We're going to go to another region of the world that is key to understanding how they are following what the Bible calls for, a revival of the old Roman Empire. They often talk about an empire that is coming into place. That's the term that I use with John Rood when we talk with him about the European Union and how they are really setting the stage. John, basically, this whole thing seems like a bunch of little steps along the way, little puzzle parts, but it's coming better into focus, and we better stay on top of it, and let me do that by talking with you about the French troops that have been deployed into Syria. Now, Syria is a major player on Bible prophecy, as well as the European Union. Looks like the French are deciding to join with Donald Trump to stop Turkey, who's another player that uh, we need to talk about as well. But talk about the French deploying these troops. Yeah, this is also a development which is a bit surprising. There's a great deal of uncertainty and tension now with Turkey being a NATO country. This is really an issue, a big issue to deal with on the level with NATO. I'm sure that the United States at the top uh, hierarchy and uh, positions are well aware of what's happening. In terms of general knowledge that goes to people, it's usually much less than what's happening behind the closed doors. So when we see some of these things, it gives big indications of really what's happening. So the fact that France now has deployed troops into the Syria-Iraq areas, it's uh, literally beginning to counter the uh, Turkish moves which have been against the Kurdish populations in those areas. So the U.S. has had a ally now, and the rhetoric has been stepped up. Uh, Turkey has been drawing the line in the sand, and now being a NATO country, we see that there's actually tensions where Turkey is speaking about neutralizing some of the U.S. Uh, positions, and France has now entered. The European Union military is very fragmented. It's, it's been a long time, 15 years, where they're even working to get some type of organization together. 
but it's significant that the French troops have been de- deployed because now it's showing agreement with the United States position in the region. Well, and at that same time, going back to the continent of Europe itself, looks like the far right, a Nazi philosophical type of approach, the apologists of that particular view are becoming mainstream as it relates to Central Europe. That's not a good sign either, is it? There's quite a bit happening in Central Europe, and even, you know, some of these instances are coming from the leaders, the presidents. You know, the big question is really why, why are we seeing this? The far-right tensions, actually, they're some of the proponents that would be of anti-European Union sentiment, and there's really always a great, great concern to hear of anti-Semitic, anti-minority, Nazi collaborators in Eastern Europe and so forth. But what actually happened is the EU, in some sense, has helped to create this type of situation where there's a great polarization. So the European Union has really pushed a non-democratic European project. And so there hasn't been a real alternative for people to work and express any other view. And what's happened is people now have actually gone to radical and extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both sides have a real problem dealing with each other. There's not much middle of the road now in European Union politics. Anything that's seen as conservative in the news can be literally pushed to the far-right perspective. And yet there really is a far-right growing uh, tendency, which is a big problem. It's all showing the Daniel II iron and clay tensions. It's just the European Union is just explosive in these terms of politics. Well, they certainly are. And in fact, a perfect example of that is the nation that's trying to pull out of the European Union. That's Great Britain. And meanwhile, Tony Blair, former prime minister of Great Britain, voicing a concern about how the Labour Party in the United Kingdom must come together to root out anti-Semitism. This is the next step. You have the far right, then anti-Semitism, which is prevalent. That moves to the end-time scenario found in the Word. Yeah, Tony Blair led the Labour Party, of course, for 13 years. He made a, a recent visit to Israel. So they're trying to bring him and terms of being a figurehead to bring back some of the previous influence from the Labour Party. But now there's been so many scandals in the United Kingdom. The Labour Party has actually cited 70 cases of alleged anti-Semitism. And so how did this happen? Again, people are starting to form an identity by showing this polarity. And so even it was a surprise for the uh, when the labor leader, Jeremy Corbyn, came in with uh, often very uh, strict views. So they're trying to pull the Labor Party together. In the same time, the Conservative Party, led by Prime Minister Theresa May, has their hands full with Brexit. What a, what an issue. What a time to see all this happening. That's the profound statement right there. What a time to see all of this happening. I'm amazed as we have a conversation, John, how it's so quickly coming together. Part of uh, how we continue to say the prophetic scenario in God's Word will be fulfilled in current events seems to help us recognize the time in which that is about to happen. 
John, thank you so much. These are key reports that we have from you, my good friend. Thank you and your knowledge, experience, your longtime existence of living there in Brussels, Belgium, helping us to understand the events. Thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. My pleasure. Well, here comes a broadcast partner that we haven't talked to for a couple of weeks, Mike Gendron. He heads up an organization entitled ProclaimingTheGospel.org. I love when I call their number and nobody's there. Uh, The response on the answering machine, we've gone out preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord, Mike. Thank you for your ministry, and in particular to what you refer to as the largest feel for reaching lost people, and that's all of Catholicism. Am I correct on that? Yes, over 1.2 billion Roman Catholics need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and quit following this false prophet that continues to blaspheme the Lord Jesus and call him a liar. I really don't know when Catholics are going to wake up from their stupor and just realize this man is a false prophet. How many more statements does he have to make that goes against the Word of God and the doctrines of salvation? It's really puzzling, but I've got great compassion for Catholics because that's where I was for so many years until God opened my eyes to see the glorious grace of the gospel. Well, praise the Lord for that opening of your eyes. Now, the false prophet that Mike was referring to has to be Pope Francis. He's there in Rome, and I'm calling you to find out whether it's true or false. I mean, I've heard that uh, the Pope said there's no such place as hell, and then there's a uh, comeback by some of the media that, no, that's not what he said. Let me explain. What is the truth? Did he make the statement or not, Mike? Well... Uh, the, the Vatican's trying to cover up his statement by daring to say that he, there's no indication that he actually made the quotes during uh, an interview that he had with a 93-year-old atheist. But here's my situation with this, Jimmy. If the Pope indeed never made the statement, why doesn't he come out to his holy balcony at St. Peter's Square and tell the world that he was misquoted, that he really believes there is a hell, and that those who die without Christ will end up there. You know, he could set the record straight. He has that power. He has a worldwide audience. He could step out on that balcony any time and clear it up. But instead, he wants to leave 1.2 billion Catholics confused and misunderstood. I just don't understand, but we do know that the actual quote of the Pope, it was very clear that he denied the existence of hell. He said... And I'm quoting what what actually came out of the interview. He said, those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven simply disappear. There is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls. And so he's calling for annihilation of those who die without Christ. They no longer exist. That hell's no longer there. And so what he's doing, and I, I mentioned this briefly, but... He's calling Jesus a liar because Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus said to the false teachers of the first century, and the Pope needs to pay attention to this, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. And then later on he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? 
And so clearly um, the Pope needs to heed the warnings of our Lord Jesus because he's as big a false prophet as the scribes and Pharisees of the apostate Jews 2,000 years ago. That's what Jesus had to say, in fact, in his Olivet Discourse. Watch out for these false prophets that will be very prevalent in the time that I come back. And that's the second coming. Now, we're talking about at least a seven-year period of time because the rapture takes place, then the tribulation, and then the return of which he was talking about in the Olivet Discourse. So that the people who are going to be alive in that time are going to recognize this is what Jesus said would be happening. Uh, let me ask, I don't know that much about uh, the doctrine of the church, and I don't want to get a lot into it, but has not the church doctrine of the Catholic Church been that there is a hell, or has that not been mentioned in doctrine? Oh, definitely. It's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that was written by the previous Pope, Pope Benedict, and he definitely spoke of a hell, of those who die in the state of mortal sin. And, Jimmy, we know from Scripture that all sin is mortal, but the Catholic Church teaches that there are venial sins that do not send anyone to hell. But we know from Scripture the wages of sin is death. The second death is the eternal lake of fire. The real question comes up is, why is the Pope making these statements? Prophetically, I think he's making these statements to build his global church. I mean, after all, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church where the head of the church denies the existence of the eternal fires of hell? This would be an excellent way to get rapid growth in a global church and get everybody to come and join. But, Jimmy, you may have also seen recently another announcement by the Pope that I also think has prophetic implications. He declared that there's a new feast day now where Mary is celebrated as the mother of the church. Mm. And again, I think uh, prophetically, if there's a global church where Muslims and Catholics will come together, then there needs to be a common bond. And I think Mary is that bond. Mary is spoken of more in the Koran than she is in the Bible. And so for the Pope to make her mother of this global church, that would be a welcome card for Muslims to come in because they highly esteem Mary. And so each time the Pope makes a statement, I always look at it through the lens of prophecy, and I believe that's where the real motivation comes in for these bizarre statements. Yeah, I would think exactly the same thing. Our two sons, Jim Jr. and Rick, had a tour in Rome just the other day. They just returned from that trip. And uh, Jimmy Jr., who is our oldest son, stood right there at uh, the church, in front of the church, and taught the book of Revelation, chapter 17, which talks about that false church coming. Well, and having said that, it seems to me that you were indicating, you're talking about uh, Pope Benedict. He came out strong and reconfirmed the reality of hell, and then along comes Pope Francis. Do you think he's ignorant of the fact on hell, or literally he's just demon-possessed and a false prophet? Yeah, he's carrying out the really the methods and the motivations, uh, I think, are coming from a satanic influence. We know in the end that Satan is the one that will build the global church because he will have his man, the Antichrist, worshipped as the true Christ. And and so I think all of these uh, movements toward a global church are demonically inspired. And 
There's no doubt the Catholic Church teaches doctrines of demons. After all, they repeat the first lie of the devil in the garden, you surely shall not die. And that is a doctrine of the devil. It really is the doctrine of venial sins, because all sin, as I said, causes death. We also see in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in latter days some will depart from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And, of course, one of the doctrines Paul explains is forbidding people to marry. Mm-hmm. And we know that the only Christian organization that denies its people to marry is the Roman Catholic Church, forbidding its priests and nuns to marry. So there's no doubt the Catholic Church is following the doctrines of the devil, and they are really a pawn of the devil, really a catalyst for building the One World Church in the end times. When the Pope makes that statement, when it's front-page news around the world, we have to go to the man who deals with all of this, knows it from his personal background, but then because of his study after coming to know Christ and his ministry, he has to be able to respond to those who want to have an answer, and that's the true gospel, Jesus Christ. Him alone and his blood alone and his salvation alone. Is that how you say it? That's right. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Rome denies that, and they also condemn anyone who believes that. So there can be no unity with the Catholic Church, and we need to be remain sanctified by the truth of God's Word. Amen. I'll agree with that all the way. Mike Gendron, he heads up an organization, ProclaimingTheGospel.org. That's their web address. Go there and find out more information about what Mike and his team are doing. Mike, thank you so very much helping us to clear up the truth. We appreciate it. We'll talk again real soon. Okay, Jimmy. Keep looking up. Keep contending for the faith. Amen. He's on the way. God bless you, my good friend. Okay, bye now. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I've got David James. We're going to kind of continue this conversation, talk about what's the difference between the Lake of Fire and Hades and uh, the bottomless pit. This is a part of this whole context we wanted to focus on here today on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central Chattanooga, Tennessee. I want to give you the poll question in a moment, but let me ask you to stay tuned for my last eight minutes. We usually refer to that as a time for us to take a look at the book. Special breaking news. I'll give it to you at that point in time, so keep the dial set right where it is. Meanwhile, go to our website, prophecytoday.com, on the home page, on the left-hand column, if you'll scroll down, we have our poll question. Here it is. Even though the Pope says no one goes to hell, do you believe that the Bible is the better authority on hell when Jesus spoke of hell ten times more than he did on heaven? 
Well, that's the poll question. Want to get your response. We had two different ones of our broadcast partners talk about hell, with Mike Gendron focusing on what the Pope had to say. And then in a moment, David James will give us insight into all the understanding in God's Word as it relates to that subject. And by the way, if you're on the website, be sure to go to our Joshua Travel location, find out about our eight tours, and look up and get information about our School of Prophets conference upcoming the last three days of May right here in Chattanooga. That's all available at my website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. Normally we catch him, well, all over the world. That's normal. <laughs> and we finally had him a couple of weeks at home, and now he's gone again, this time taking his wife, because they have gone to Hungary, where they have ministered for a number of years, over 20 years, there as the head of the Bible Institute. David, earlier, Mike Gendron and I were talking about the Pope's apparent denial of the existence of hell. And so as we focus on the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment and ask the question, is it biblical, I thought it'd be good to dig into this further from a biblical perspective. So give me some thoughts. Well, I think it's a good idea, and I had been following this issue with the Pope as well, again, since I've been teaching about Roman Catholicism for about 30 years now. And, of course, as I'm sure that Mike said, the official Catholic doctrine, which is actually unchangeable because of the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope and the infallibility of the bishops, that cannot change. But it's not just the Catholics who have a problem with this. I think, of course, uh, liberal Protestantism for the last 150 or 200 years have denied the existence of hell or denied the eternality of hell, but unfortunately it's also making inroads even uh, for some people who have grown up within conservative evangelicalism, and yet they have departed from that as well. There are various forms, uh, some people believing that all people will ultimately be saved or that hell is not eternal. So I think it's a good thing that we do discuss that. Yeah, and I think it would be very helpful for those who may be listening in to discuss the various places of punishment mentioned in the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments, places like Sheol, Hell, Hades, Gehenna, the Lake of Fire, the Bottomless Pit, and so on. So let's do that for a few moments. Sure. Well, it's certainly a lot to cover, but I'll try to keep it really brief so that our listeners can follow along. It's certainly uh, something that I would encourage them to do their own study of. Uh, Sheol is the place of the dead in the Old Testament, mentioned 65 times in the Old Testament in the New King James Version, uh, as well as the King James Version, but more specifically the King James. It's translated variously as hell. Some places it is translated as Sheol. Some places it's translated as the pit, and then other places that word is translated simply as the grave. So the doctrine of hell in the Old Testament isn't as detailed as it is in the New, and in fact, Sheol being the place of the dead actually had two places within it, one that would be known in the New Testament as Hades, and the other part being paradise, the place where the the righteous went when they died. Now in the New Testament, much more detail, the word Hades in the Greek appears 11 times, and we see this specifically, for example, 
example in Luke 16, where a rich man was in Hades or in hell and a place of torment, and he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, which would have been the paradise portion of Sheol. Then the word Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament. For example, in Luke 12, 5, Jesus tells people that you shouldn't fear those who just kill the body, but fear him who has the power to cast you into Gehenna. Gehenna is named after the Hinnom Valley, which is a place of uh, basically an ongoing fire where they tr- they threw trash there in the city of Jerusalem, and so the fire continued burning there, and so that became a picture of hell. Then there's the word Tartarus, which is found one time in the Scripture in 2 Peter 2, 4, talking about the angels who sinned, and I believe those are the angels from Genesis 6 who sinned and were contributing factor in the flood, and that God has cast them down to hell or to Taurus and delivered them into chains of darkness. And then there is the pit that we find in the book of Revelation, also used in conjunction with the word the abyss, and we see it, for example, Revelation chapter 9, where the angels given the key to the bottomless pit, and then the, the smoke locusts come out of that pit. And also later in Revelation 20, we find that Satan is bound for a thousand years in that bottomless pit. And then, of course, the lake of fire we read about one time in Revelation 20, and that is where unbelievers of all history are cast when they are judged guilty at the great white throne judgment. So that's a quick overview. Well, a quick overview, and because it was so quick, and we have to do that, of course, on the broadcast, it might be a good idea for you to go back and re-listen to this. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there we'll post this conversation that I had with David. It'll be very important. Slow it down, listen to it, take some notes. That'll be good. David, in the case of each of these places, the scriptures present them as a real place. However, there are those who simply take them symbolic of life after death for the wicked. That's dangerous, isn't it? Well, it's very dangerous because I think, uh, you know, if you're going to talk about these being real places, and of course Jesus referred to hell actually more times and and with very stern warnings, actually more than he even referred to heaven or paradise. And so if you're going to discount the idea of hell, Sheol, the abyss, uh, the pit, the lake of fire as being real places, then you also have to ask, well, then why would I believe that there's such a thing as heaven or either. So, of course, we are not free to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like or dislike or believe or disbelieve, but rather we uh, take the entire Word of God as completely infallible, without error, inspired by God, and therefore it has authority in our lives, and it is our rule for everything that we believe. So we must handle these things as uh, completely true as they are written in the Word of God. One of the questions that frequently comes up in almost any discussion of hell is why would a good and loving God send someone to a place like hell, or ultimately the lake of fire, to be tortured with unbearable pain forever? That's a pretty tough question. How can you respond? 
Well, it is a tough question, and some of the greatest minds, theological minds and philosophers uh, throughout history have tried to wrestle with that question, so I'm not sure that we'll be able to give it a whole lot of uh, or sufficient treatment in just our brief time together, but I would suggest this. I think it's sort of coming at the question from the wrong side. Even the, the more difficult question is this, how is it that an infinitely holy and just God would allow anyone to come into his presence? Uh, because we are all sinful from birth, and we actually all deserve an eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And so the answer to that question is also combined with the fact in Romans 1.18, where it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we all uh, suppress the truth of God, even from what we can see in nature, and yet, because God is both infinitely holy and just, he is also infinitely loving, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He actually became a man and died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve, so that those who would place their faith and trust in him might have both the free gift of a forgiven sin and eternal life. And so we we reject God, and so he will ultimately give us what we choose ourselves, and that would be eternal separation from him if we choose not to accept his free gift of eternal life. David, uh, there's a view that has been gaining popularity even among some prominent Bible teacher, which says that even though there is a hell, it is only temporary because fire consumes and destroys the souls of the wicked ones after some period of time. Your thoughts on that? Right. The technical term for that, and a lot of the things we discuss do have technical theological terms. Uh, uh, the terms would be conditional immortality, meaning that man does not necessarily live forever, only the righteous live forever, whereas the wicked are destroyed. And that other term uh, related to the destruction of the wicked is called annihilationism. And they make various arguments, like you said, concerning a fire being consuming. But we know that when God is present, not all fire is consuming. Just one example would be Exodus chapter 3, where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and the bush was not consumed. Furthermore, we read in Isaiah chapter 33, the prophet says, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? So a consuming fire could last forever, and since we are eternal souls, then the wicked will be tormented forever, but they will not be consumed. And then Jesus in Matthew uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, uh, three times he talks about where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and that is a quote from Isaiah chapter 66. And finally, I would say that in Matthew 25, where it talks about the the sheep and goat judgment, where it says that those who are judged guilty will be cast into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And that word for eternal in all three places are the same. So if there is no eternal fire, then there is no eternal life. Now that's an awesome thought, David. There has to be eternal life because there is eternal damnation. And we look forward to the eternal life with him forever. Of course, the most important issue in this life is concerning where we will spend the next life. 
Yet sometimes when we present the gospel, David, we are accused of making it seem like the gospel is some sort of a quote-unquote fire insurance or a get-out-of-hell-free card. Now, let me ask you, do you think this is a valid criticism today? Well, no, I don't. I think, one, we from our side, from the person who's sharing the gospel side, I think we have to be careful that we don't mischaracterize this, and we need to just simply make sure that people understand that God is holy and righteous, and that we are sinners before a holy God, and there is a penalty for rejecting God, but then there's a free offer of the gift of eternal life. But one of the things that I talk about, if you have a, if you have a child who is about ready to fall into the fire, and you yell at the top of your lungs at that child to startle him so that he doesn't keep moving to the fire and end up burned. We do that because we love the child. But from the child's side, we really don't care what stops him, whether it's fear or the tone of our voice or whatever. It doesn't matter because a young child will not necessarily respond in obedience simply because they love us, even though that would be ideal. And so we will accept any reason on the child's part for staying out of that fire. And so I think the reality of hell is just as good a reason as any, and in fact, the unbeliever cannot love and respond to him in love anyway. So the motivation is the fact that he realizes he's a sinner and there's a consequence to pay. So I don't think it's a valid criticism. And I have to give a personal testimony. When I was 11 years old in December of 1951, a Sunday school teacher told me I was on my way to hell. That scared me. I had fear of it. I didn't want to do that, so I came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't care if you call it a get-out-of-hell-free card or whatever you want to. I know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You do, too, don't you, David? That's right. Thirty Over 30 years now. Over 30 years. Hey, David, great discussion, an important discussion, in my opinion. Thank you for doing some research, getting back to us, and... Uh, have a great time there in Hungary, especially with your grandbabies, but teaching at uh, the Bible Institute as well. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. 
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Now, that's my normal introduction for this eight-minute segment, but I'm going to have to break in because during this broadcast, I got a call from Brandon House. We were to be, and I announced this in the first segment, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on Sunday night, Monday night, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for big rallies, Worldview Weekend rallies with Brandon House. But I got a call from Brandon right in the middle of the broadcast that that had to be canceled. And as he explained to me, I understood why we were not going to go flying up there. In fact, he was alerting us before Judy and I were to take off. I've got Brandon on the line right now. I thought I'd put aside a look at the book to have Brandon come on and explain what actually did happen. Uh, uh, Brandon, tell us what the, the short and sweet of it is. I probably no sweet at all, but what's going on? Yes, thank you, Dr. Young. We were in Des Moines, Iowa last night with a rally. We had to hire extra police. We did have some protesters. Some people had to be removed. But overall, it went okay. Uh, but the, yesterday, before we could even hold the event in Des Moines, first of a five-night city tour, uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin um, Hotel pulled our contract and refused to let us hold the event. And we said, hey, we have a contract. We've mailed 40,000 magazines. Uh, we've done uh, radio spots, email alerts. We spent a lot of money promoting this, and we can't hold our event. We can't recoup our costs. And they said, we don't care. Our ownership will not have you here. And I said, well, we've used your hotel before. I mean, we, we have a contract. We have freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And they said, I don't care. Our ownership does not want you here. What has happened is on Thursday morning, the Southern Poverty Law Center put out a, an alert listing all the cities and hotels we're going to and who was speaking and what we were speaking about. And then the Antifa groups, the communist Antifa groups, picked it up. We have screenshots of their Twitter feeds. And they started a coordinated effort. And uh, as of this morning, the hotel in Milwaukee had received just a massive amount of phone calls. They called and said their ownership is pulling our contract. And even we've been going there for many, many, many years. They said they've never seen anything like it. Their website was hacked. Their ownership is scared. And we said, look, we have a contract. We have an agreement. We need to be able to follow through with this. This is freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And the representative agreed this was a problem, but their hands were tied. Ownership is canceling it. And so this is what you call Sharia, and this is American businesses complying with Sharia. We not even had a civil war for the Muslims to take over. The Americans are surrendering to Sharia by canceling Christian groups, holding conferences on Islam, including with a former Muslim, Sharam Hadian, with you and uh, John Guandolo and Chris Gobbett. So here we are, folks. This is America, and yet they're the ones in front of our hotel last night in Des Moines, a great hotel, Des Moines, Iowa, Holiday and Convention Center. Their owners are 
strong Christians, conservatives, close friends for many years. They had protesters in their front of their hotel last night holding signs calling us neo-Nazis. Well, the Nazis were fascists. They censored people. Who's doing that? Not us. It's the Antifa groups, CARE, Muslim groups, Southern Poverty Law Center that is attempting to censor and silence conservatives and Christians. Brandon, who is responsible for this? Can you name some names? Southern Poverty Law Center is the one that started most of it yesterday morning, Thursday morning, on social media, listing every hotel we were going to and their phone numbers, encouraging them to shut us down. And then that's what the Antifa groups and the CARE groups started doing. They also, we got all the screen, we got a lot of screenshots. These Antifa groups go all the way back to Adolf Hitler. And go search that. Antifa groups started communist groups fighting with Adolf Hitler, who was a socialist. And then when Hitler took over, they meld, molded with him and said, okay, we'll, we'll go your way. So Antifa is a communist group that's been around for a long time. We have their screenshots. These are declared Antifa groups in Wisconsin and other states coming against us. So we'll be doing radio and showing the evidence of their social media. They've also been alerted some of the largest imams, some of the most aggressive mosques in Minneapolis, St. Paul, to Bloomington. So they're alerting their imam uh, folks all over social media, trying to orchestrate problems for us, I guess, in uh, Minneapolis to the point that a state trooper stopped at the hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota, and told the hotel, you better have a lot of cops here because we're getting a lot of chatter. You're going to have a lot of problems. Wow. Even the state police in Minnesota are concerned about that. But now that they've canceled Green Bay and they've canceled Milwaukee, it's really hard to make any of the rest of the cities feasible because we need the bigger cities like Milwaukee and Green Bay to pay for the smaller cities. And in Bloomington, the the number of police we're going to have to hire is going to make it so how can you hold these free conferences? So the Marxists and Muslims sadly are winning. They've figured out how to scare the hotels, the churches, And sadly, I think the next thing they're going to come for after they get a progressive in the White House, next they'll go for talk radio. And uh, so just watch this pattern. They'll silencing of truth with conferences. Then it'll be when they get a progressive who will put enough people on the FCC, they'll start to try to silence Christian radio, conservative radio, through uh, things called the Fairness Doctrine. Well, we've got to stand strong as it relates to the times in which we're living. Brandon, I know you're very busy. A lot of radio stations calling you to find out, networks, etc. We'll let you go, but uh, we'll be praying for Worldview Weekend and the decisions you have to make in the short days ahead. Well, I'm sorry you couldn't be with us in Milwaukee that they canceled on us. I'm sorry you can't be with us in Minneapolis. I know our people were looking forward to it. But all the more reason why we got to keep producing uh, Prophecy Today TV and getting it out that way. Absolutely. Thank you, my good friend. We'll be praying Thank for you. you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. That's the report, my dear friends. You've heard what Brandon House had to say. This is unbelievable. It's happening here in America. Now, this program is focused on Bible prophecy. We go to the European Union with John Rood to cover that, what's happening in that very unique part of the world, because that is the foundation, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. David Dolan, always on top of what we're going to be doing with his Middle East News update, helping us to stay abreast of what's going on, where everything is going to culminate as it relates to Bible prophecy. In addition to that, we bring other broadcast partners in, like Ken Timmerman. We talked with Ken today while he was in France. We're able to get a hold of him to look at the current events, the geopolitical activities that are unfolding. I need to say to you again, a broadcast like Prophecy Today is key to keep you abreast of current events in light of biblical prophecy. When you talk about Sharia, that is the law of the Islamic world. It's found and directed by the Quran, which is the holy book. 
of the Islamic world, and we need to understand the spread of Islam across the world and what ultimately is going to happen. We talk often about Ezekiel 38, Daniel chapter 11, Psalm 83, the alignment of nations that will go against the Jewish state of Israel. We try to keep you updated on these current events, and as we look at the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, we use that to be the base upon which we then send out the alert. But I need to continually remind you, all of this is ahead, and basically it will culminate during the seven-year tribulation period. What we need to do is to recognize where we are in God's time and start to really anticipate the next event on God's calendar, which is the rapture of the church. As I always conclude here when I take a look at the book, when we think about the rapture, it could happen at any moment. Having said that, Nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.